0: You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We go through the journey of their lives, not just the shiny parts of where they are today, but how they got there, the ups, the downs, the twists, the turns, all of it, because I believe that so often we are putting our feelings of being successful enough, worthy, fulfilled out there somewhere. Once I have this job, make this much money, have, you know, this deal, look this way, have this relationship, then I will feel all of these things. But often if we keep putting it outside of ourselves, we just keep chasing it, chasing it, chasing it, no matter how much we do and have. I believe it is up to us to claim our joy, our worth, our value, our success, our fulfillment every single day, sometimes every moment of the day. (laughs) On today's episode, I have a dear old friend of mine. He's not old. I just mean we've been friends for a long time, Finian Makepeace. He's currently the co founder, policy director, and lead educator of Kiss the Ground you may have heard of the Kiss the Ground documentary that came out on Netflix several months ago. If you haven't watched it. Highly recommend it. And I'm really so proud of Finn and Ryland, his partner, and everybody and what they've created in the work they're doing. And when I first met Finn, he was a musician. And so I really wanted to know more about him and his life growing up. And how did educating about soil and all the other work Kiss the Ground is doing become the thing that he's doing? And I really loved getting to know that story. And again, please watch Kiss the Ground, go to their website, links in the show notes and learn more about what they're up to and the changes that are happening and that you can be a part of making. All right, let's get to the episode. All right, Finian that's how you say your name, right? I just like question myself because I mm-hmm. usually just say Finn now.
1: <laughs> yes, Finian.
0: I love to start with asking people how they grew up. And I feel like yours is a more mm. unique background. But like, I like, especially, I want to know really how you grew up. Because again, I f- feel like from what I know of you, it's different than many people. But I also like to talk about like high school ages because that's when, you know, I can feel like we get this pressure of like, What should I do with my life to go to Mm. college? What am I going to be when I grow up? So, yeah, what was life like for you growing up?
1: I grew up in the country mostly with three brothers. I was born in Syracuse, New York. And by the age of two, I moved to Ithaca uh, and then was living out in the country. I think by the time I was three, I moved into kind of my childhood house that was also out in the country, bordering on a decent-sized forest or area, and I was homeschooled. So along with my brothers, this meant a lot of time outside. We had a big yard, and my mom gardened a lot. We had compost, and and the yard just was right up against a, a big woods, and we were out in that woods all the time, winter, spring, summer, fall. We were homeschooled, and what that means is different for many homeschoolers. Uh, Some homeschoolers is like, you know, nine to three, five days a week, uh, sitting and learning lessons. Um, Our homeschooling was a bit different. My dad is a, or was a portrait artist, he's passed away, but he was therefore in our house, in his office-esque area doing that. And so a lot of our schooling was based on questions that would arise, and then we would discuss them. So amazingly, my father would always cater to an interruption about something, if there was something to be learned or something to be hashed out, whatever. And then my mom was more of the kind of like lesson type, you know, create the arts and crafts kind of things for us to do and and kind of learn that way. Um, But a lot of it meant that we were free to roam and do pretty much whatever we wanted. We went to bed pretty late, we woke up pretty late. There wasn't really a uh an order, if you will, of exactly what happens day in and day out if we were in a game, for example, uh that could last several weeks with no disturbance of a game like uh playing with little salvanians, but like or or doing big structures with with different things, but even more than that, there were games and characters that went on for years. We did some levels of uh, imaginary games that kids play that you would have to you would have to hear more of that story to understand the depth that these would go to. But think full- blown soap opera script acted out for. Six to eight years. This is the level and depth of characters. I mean, spanning to probably 120 some odd characters that we would different part uh, parts of it would play. My, my my older brother Liam and I were kind of the the main core of this. Aidan graduated out of it sooner, and being the oldest, and my younger brother Kieran only dabbled in it a bit as the youngest. But the two of us were were deep entrenched in this. So being homeschooled meant, uh, yeah, again, that that was kind of the the lessons were just. Kind of when and, and where, and lots of deep discussions during dinner about different topics. My dad and mom both had pretty good education backgrounds, so when questions came up around science or different things, we could really get into them, and I felt really lucky about that. So had some really great background uh, on those areas.
0: And did you have like? friends that were like nearby and stuff too? Like, it, was it mostly you and your brothers or were there also like families that were doing like, similar things or like, did you play, did you guys involve in sports or anything that was like outside where, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there was a homeschooling community in Ithaca, New York that we had. Um, so we would get together with them quite often. I had a play group when I was young, like five and six. Those kind of core friends who were also homeschooled, we'd see quite a bit. And yeah, those were, those were always kind of the the main reason it could actually work. And then later when I was about 10, 9, 10, 11, I think I went to something called Green Path, which was three days a week, homeschoolers, about 20 kids getting together, different ages from like five to 12, getting together, doing different things, sometimes split apart to older, younger, sometimes all together kind of learning stuff. But also like with that group going into Cornell University and like, learning from top-notch professors about biodiversity things and like going and so we got some really kind of like advanced schooling but at the same time like missed some <laughs> basic stuff like oh how do I do long division oh missed that one because you know p- parents forget to teach the third <laughs> kid things so yeah it was, it was kind of mismatched of like d- really deep and then some stuff that just kind of got left out but uh Overall, it was a lot of time to think, ponder, notice, sit in nature, especially in my like uh you know, years after ten years old, like just some being able to go out into the woods by yourself is such an amazing experience and sit and just be. Like I, I, I see the fast pace of our world today and how much media and social media I'm on and how much time I'm on computers working and stuff. But like my childhood, I I spent Not just time with my siblings out in in nature, with my friends out in nature, but by myself, sitting in nature, building a fort by myself for days on end in nature. Like things that, you know, there quote unquote isn't time for for anyone in today's modern American society.
0: Well, also, I feel like even if a family was living in the exact place that you were and and everything was the same, the forest and stuff there, that parents were less likely to let their children go play in a forest by themselves. You know, like that we...
1: (laughs) Well, plus we were in that forest. So of course parents were afraid to let their kids (laughs) into that forest. No, I'm being sort of joking, but like we were kind of the ones who were of the forest in that way of like... So there was neighbors and people who would like... You would occasionally see them tromping through the forest on a hike through the thing. And we'd be like in our fort hiding out and like, they wouldn't even know we were there. Like the kind of stuff... And we had been there, you know, weeks on end, every day, twelve hours a day, sometimes sleeping overnight for multiple nights in a row. Like,
0: wow, so you would sleep. <laughs>
1: yeah, totally. We build forts and sleep in it and that kind of thing. So when you're when you're not going to school five days a week, uh, it's not just the summers that are for exploring and doing things. So projects could become much longer term and and interest of. Okay, now we're building a fort in the side of a cliff for. 3 months and that would be a pretty substantial project.
0: Did you ever like have any activities with kids that were in regular school and like did you ever feel like oh I'm different or this isn't like right in some yeah. way like different like oh, I'm different but I get it but like yeah you know like did it yeah do you remember feeling like any sort of Oh
1: yeah definitely I mean the the homeschooling thing came with a pretty good amount of insecurities that would were basically where I wish my parents had been more aware is that insecurities of not being enough or caught up or not knowing, just assuming that other kids were knowing things, understanding things were, you know, if, I, if my parents had been a bit more cognizant that we would be self-inflicting doubt on ourselves, I think that would have been really helpful. So if I ever were to homeschool my children, I would I would work on being really aware of how am I making sure my child isn't putting assumptions of what what they're missing that are kind of making them feel inadequate in certain ways. But then of course there were the missing like we didn't have TV either, so we didn't grow up with television. So hanging out with other kids were kind of in the norm, quote unquote, of how much TV they watched and.
0: TV was like my babysitter.
1: It was like, wait, what, do, what like, are they even yeah, talking like, about? Right. The TV
0: is always on.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't even be able to reference anything. I'd be like, wait, I don't even know any of the characters you're talking about. And they'd be like, how do you not know this? And I'd just be like, uh. so there were certain things that, you know, when when you're amongst your homeschool friends, it's like, that's your container. And then when you're in the public school friends slash friends who watch tons of TV, it was a bit, a bit of a challenge sometimes.
0: Yeah, and so what you were saying is that not even kids making you feel like maybe you didn't know enough, but like that you were just automatically projecting since they're in school Monday through Friday with these teachers, they know more. I don't know. Like I'm... Uncertain,
1: uncertain things. Yeah. So just kind of realizing that, you know, we all have insecurities we deal with, but, you know, being aware of your kids' potential insecurities, you know, I think is an important thing for parents to, to, on any front. Obviously kids Mm -hmm. in school, we're dealing with, Peer to peer insecurity pushes that were even probably way more significant, which I later realized when I went into eighth grade uh, with public school. Oh,
0: so you did start public school in eighth grade?
1: Yeah, like I said, I was in that kind of three day a week program from like nine to maybe ten or eleven, and then I took a couple years just schooling on my own. And then like for eighth grade, I went into public school, which was an alternative public school, which again was like two hundred sixty kids between sixth and twelfth grade, which is a I'll talk about in a minute about how profound that was. Um, but yeah, that was really a stunner to me of seeing all of these kids who were so trapped in the bully sphere or the, the force field of bulliness and, or pure uh, scared and uh, people who were so afraid and uh, insecure that the tendencies to, put down other people, ostracize other people to give themselves a gain or give themselves a part of the the clique that was doing the making fun of, of someone else. I was just aghast by how, you know, these are sixth, seventh, eighth graders around me, the willingness to side with the bully. And then, to, of course, it fast forward to today of just the willingness for people to vote for said sixth grade bully. You start to realize, oh, oh, these kids somehow were turned into adults without evolving past kind of sixth grade bully mentality. But I saw that from an outside perspective and it was shocking, Trisha, to see the depths of trapped inside of a force field uh, of insecurity and bullies able to reign in a school setting. And I was luckily tall and pretty big, so I was just able to straight up challenge it, be like, this is insane no, I'm not going to succumb to this relationship of how the dynamics of the school work. And so lo and behold, M- Make peace. of course, being my last name was
0: right. no, no
1: irony there. But of course, I just had to stand up and yeah. challenge that, uh, that kind of condition. And, and I did in many ways and was successful, but it was crazy to me, the dynamics that had been set up for kids since they were probably in second or third grade of just like, Don't put yourself in a position of being able to be ostracized.
0: Yeah, no. And that's amazing that you were able to see that because also I bet some people would have come in too and just been so focused again on their own insecurities that they wouldn't have even been aware of that because like I was in school the whole time and I had my own sort of realizations with that. Like and I remember being in elementary school and like being friends with the popular kid just because we grew up to each other because we lived next to each other. And she would be like, we don't like him today. And everybody, like, not like Kim and be mean to Kim. And I was be like, what? this doesn't make sense. I like Kim. <laughs> like, so I would be, like, the only one yeah. playing with Kim. Yeah. And then I, I mean, I almost committed suicide when I was 15, a freshman in high school, because of my physical stuff that I was going through. What? But also because I was just so sick of the bullshit of like, yeah, like you're trying so hard to be like, to be chosen, to be what's the right thing to say. I mean, that's really where like the impact of shoulds, it took me years to weed it out and place it on the word. Yeah. But now it's like a realization back then that I almost took my own life, but realized what if I tried life a different way and basically like stopped caring so much what everybody else thought and was just like, what if I allowed what I felt to be the most important thing? So even if nobody was going to side with me if it meant I wasn't no longer invited to that party mm-hmm. or those people wouldn't sit with me or whatever and so like we hadn't had a similar experience but way different in that sort of noticing early the bullshit that a lot of people are grown adults and still don't realize that they're living their lives like <laughs> like
1: that oh yeah oh yeah that's the I mean that's where we're we're sitting today and uh, you know to bring it back to to now is is we're we're so conditioned and you know, just one example I give for a, a stretch back a bit was the, the quickness to, to vote on the Patriot Act, to vote on bombing um, Afghanistan because of sixth grade tendencies of our representatives, not being able to have any uh, dexterity in their own understanding of things, to be too afraid of being called out for not being patriotic enough. Uh, after nine eleven was just insane and sick, and you just see the sickness of how we're we're so weak, really. And it stems, I think, from kind of conditioning that you know we allow and perpetuate as as adults, and not noticing what's happening to kids and their conditioning of the bully forest field. And if our kid isn't being super affected, quote unquote, we we kind of let it go. So I was lucky in that I had a good amount of confidence in myself and had two older brothers who had gone to the same school before and had, you know, enough friends who had also gotten into that school with me, but I wasn't feeling um, desperate for friendships from kind of the bully sphere. And I'd always been someone who kind of protected the meek, even when I was in the homeschool groups when I was like six, of like, why are we picking on this kid just because he's uh, you know, obviously a little bit off on this or that, like everyone's just willing to to throw him under the bus. So I had like a history of that, but then also being bigger, also being stronger and fit and all these other things of like I just could too.
0: Right. Like you, because of the genetics you had, then it was yeah. like easier. Whereas if you were a wiry little kid like guy with glasses
1: right like where would i have just given up where would i have just given up right where i've just been like this is hopeless and i got beat up and uh, but like you know one of the silliest dynamics that happened later on you know after i'd kind of been challenging this this status quo was uh and this is kind of silly but sometimes you see like strange dynamics this is interesting for me to share as a pacifist but my one of my friends brought uh, boxing gloves in for a presentation and uh, so, of course, at, at lunch, the boys went out to the to the outside to the, the parking lot, and it was like, "Oh, we're just going to play around with these boxing gloves." So a few people were like testing the boxing gloves, and then it was like, "Oh, Finian, you should do it with, with the bully." Basically, the guy was a bully, and I was like, "Okay." And so, one of the most strange dynamic shifts that I've ever witnessed was. I had two older brothers. I, you know, I can I'm I'm a make piece, but I can hold my own, right? And it was just like I totally womped him, and it was humiliating for him because he was the big tough guy or the one people were afraid of, and it was just humiliating for him. It was really weird, but strangely, and this is where like I knew his upbringing. I could see his pain. I could tell his parents. You know, I saw them, and I could see that he was someone who was obviously hurting others because of his own. Household scenario, and like I, you know, had that whole analysis going on, but this just happened to be like a sparring match of just for fun. But the the kind of I'm not the tough guy anymore happened, which was really interesting of the dynamic change after that, on top of the dynamic change that was already happening. So it was really interesting to be able to kind of have an outside way to not have it be a fight, but to have it be a you don't get to boss people around because you're the toughest anymore.
0: How do you think that you were able to see that back then? Like, because now I could look back and see, oh, okay, that person was probably hurting.
1: I, I literally saw it just like that. I literally saw it just like that.
0: But I mean, was that, you know, based on like how your parents had raised you or you just have, some, have somehow always had this noticing? Or you like really actually knew his situation? <laughs> like, no, I...
1: <sighs> I have always had a strange noticing of, of empathy and my parents, especially my mom and, and my dad really of like someone else's rage is not usually because they're inherently mean, but usually there's something going on that conditions that And now with a therapist wife, Abby Makepeace, I learned, I've learned a lot more about how true that can be of what conditioning can do to create someone's, who they're who they're acting out as. And so I saw that and, and I saw his parents, you know, I saw it and I could feel his uh, relation to that and what he had to face when he went home and who he was associated as with them. So you can just, if you know, if you pay attention to it, I think you can notice it for pretty much anybody. You know, Donald Trump, for example, like if you see who his dad was, it's not crazy of who he was, and if you see how his mom treated him and his dad treated him, there's both sides of the narcissistic personality that's evolved from that. And, uh, you know, you can, you can see things. It's not, I don't think it's impossible if we pay attention to see people, but I think a lot of us are just coasting through not seeing it. But to be truthful, I have two older brothers. I have a younger brother. Like I was always the one who saw the hurting people much more than they did. And we were raised with the same parents.
0: Yeah. That's a, yeah. Like, I think now for me, especially, it's easier to see. I don't know if I would have seen that back then. So, yeah, even if your parents had put that message in you, though, too, that's amazing. Just like, to you know think about that 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 somebody else is in pain and that's why they're acting out so what did um when you were like did high school like wh- where were you starting to feel like what were you going to do and like when did you get into music were you guys was that something that was always around the house because when I met you you were definitely that's the first thing I would think of would be musician
1: yeah music my mom always played the guitar you know she had kids so she didn't end up doing her music she's also kind of introvert so she didn't but we had her playing her songs and other songs in our house all our lives, harmonizing with us when we were just starting to sing. Um, my dad would tinkle around, but he liked to write poems and songs, but that, like he would tinkle on the guitar and sing a, just a little bit, but bedtime story kind of stuff. Um, but then when I was 10, we took a, a nearly nine-month trip around the United States in an RV, an entire wow. family of six in a 24. Five foot Winnebago. Uh, That was intense. Uh, I was 10, and we brought somehow magically fit onto that small, small Winnebago for six people. We brought like four guitars. I don't know how we did it, but not that all of us started playing, but my older brother started playing, and then I started playing. And on my 10th birthday in Florida, I got a guitar, which arguably wasn't good enough to use. So I used my mom's guitar anyway, but it was kind of just the having my own guitar really set me off. And so by the time we got home from that trip, um, we started playing more and my younger brother, Kieran, who, you know, who he really started drumming. We were in New Orleans on that trip and he had, you know, been the kind of really amazingly gifted rhythm guy. And he sat on the lap of this, uh, what are their names? Uh, this famous family, uh, <laughs> I've met them now in later life. I'm forgetting their names. I'm sorry. Uh, but my brother sat on the lap of this drummer at, at six years old and played the drums in New Orleans. And that was pretty dope. Um, just cause he was, he was standing next to the drummer and we were all like, where's Kieran? And the drummer saw him just like staring at him. And my dad just like, Oh yeah, he likes to play. So the drummer picked him up, put him on his lap. But, uh, so we we ended up getting Kieran a drum set when we got home, a little makeshift drum set. And then, I ended up starting playing it as an older, four years older than him. I started playing it with my older brothers who were starting to practice more. And then I started getting into percussion. I started, uh, my dad got me a djembe and I started going to, (laughs) this is some weird stuff, but like there wasn't anywhere to really practice being a djembe or percussionist at, at 11 years old, 10 years old. So I would start going to my family, my parents, friends, parties where they would do like hippie drum circles. And they'd just be like, okay. Sometimes they went with me, but mostly it was like, okay, Finn, you're going to go with so-and-so and and then just wait till they're all, you know, ready to do a drum circle. So I would be at some like hippie ass parties waiting for the adults to start the drum circle. And then I would just go nuts on the drum circle. So that was a bit of my interesting, (laughs) interesting backstory of music. And then I started, so I was the percussionist for my brother, Aiden's band from 15, 16. And, uh, then later uh, I became the drummer for his band as well in, in high school. So, well, no, that was, wait, hold on. Let's see. Yeah. Um Percussionist until I was about 15 and then 17 became the drummer for his band.
0: But so you guys weren't like back, like, oh, okay. We're all in like this enjoying music. Let's form a band together. Like you got into music. He started a band and then, oh, okay, Finn, you're, playing percussion. How about you play percussion?
1: And No, I mean, it was all kind of happening together simultaneously. Um, so it was, yeah, Aiden, Aiden kind of leading it. Liam played bass. My other brother, two older brother, Aiden, was kind of lead songwriter. Uh, and then I started playing percussion. And then later on, Aiden's band, the second band. So the first band was called Redrum Snog. The second band was called Oculus. So then I became the drummer for Oculus, and that was pretty that was kind of a, the first bigger band thing that I had done.
0: And so, but at that time then, are you like thinking like, oh, playing music is fun or like, I'm going to make a career out of being a musician or like.
1: Yeah, definitely by the time of the the second band, Oculus um, was definitely moved to the more serious. And I was kind of leading the charge in a lot of ways on that band and promotion and, and booking the shows and getting like, Getting things really moving, so fast forward a bit on that band, Aiden and I went did a semester in London, trying to make some moves there
0: a semester high school or college
1: college yeah uh in London, we did a tour of Brazil with that band we did uh, tour tours of uh, the east Coast in the United States up to Canada.
0: Wow, so you got pretty it wasn't just like a high school band we got
1: really into it um. No, it was, this was like, uh, this was coming out of high school into college for me and, uh, yeah, it was my life. We had a house we lived in as a band, so I didn't live, I didn't have the regular college experience. So I was the first two years of college. I was going to community college in, in New York, Ithaca, um, for trying to transfer to Cornell. And so I had, I wasn't like in dorms or anything. I was just living in a house with my band and, um, that was pretty intense.
0: And what were you going to college for? And were you like, I want to go to college? Was there any push from your family? Was it just like, this is what you do?
1: No, I wanted to go to college for political science, which is what I ended up going to UCLA for as well. Yeah, political science was always my my goal there to be able to, I've always had an activist part of my life ever, forever. So I've always been kind of leading things and looking at policy dynamics for human rights, for civil rights, for environmental rights and different things. So that's been a part of my life. Political science Just seemed like a place where I could learn about, um, how we can just to fast forward on that for a second is sadly, I felt like in my political science research, just how insane it was, how much we were studying and justifying and finding reasons for war versus studying and justifying and finding reasons for peace. It was just way lopsided for how much significance and bolstering of kind of the the people who, who brought us into terrible situations, sometimes saved us from terrible situations, you could argue, but we definitely don't study peace nearly as much as we study war. So that was a very big disappointment for my political science degree. So that's a, another matter.
0: well it's kind of the same because yeah i am interested in like yeah so you're going to college and and studying something you want to study and then also you have this band that's like picking up
1: yeah and that the band was the 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 thing and so i ended up i ended up deciding i didn't want to go to cornell because i was sick of ithaca and then i just decided to move across country to san francisco
0: and what pulled you to san francisco
1: I thought that it would be a great place to get the band started. And we had a couple friends there. Um, I don't know. I I should have gone to LA immediately because San Francisco was a bit of a a whirlwind and a hard hardship, but the only person who followed me out there was the bass player. And so I brought my van out there and it was definitely a, a hard time of my life. I was essentially living in my van for nine or so months. And then I, my girlfriend at the time I moved in with her, but It was definitely like I have a pretty high threshold of being willing to struggle in life. And like, you know, I was just like, I didn't ask for help. I I found a job about an hour away where I was doing inspections for houses, for energy efficiency and like the stuff I had done, some work I had done back in in Ithaca. Um, So I kind of just made it work, but it was a struggle for sure. Yeah. Definitely in terms of like living, living far, far, far below the poverty line for about two years.
0: (laughs) And at that point, had you graduated or did you put school on hold?
1: Well, I was going to, I was going to school and sadly all my credits from, yeah, all my credits from New York didn't transfer to the West coast. Cause I was uh-huh. trying to go to Berkeley. Uh, so I was, I was like, Oh, I'm transferring to Cornell. That seems to be going well. Berkeley should be a slam dunk. And then I was like, Nope, none of your credits transfer. So I had to go to community college again, starting in San Francisco. So I was going to San Francisco community college trying to get the band to move out. The bass player was the only one who moved out. Um, and then I kinda let music slide for a second. And then I started playing again and started playing guitar again.
0: Cause at that point before you were still the drummer.
1: Well, I was quote unquote still a drummer at that point.
0: In Oculus. So then when you move out there, yeah, the bass yeah. player follows you.
1: I'm still the drummer and like my brother and the lead guitar player didn't move cause they were in relationships or whatever. Anyway, so it was like, it was like, okay, I started just playing my guitar, writing songs, and then I just would like be at a party or so and start jamming, and people would be like, wow, we really like this. What is this? Because it was kind of a different sound than people had heard, and, uh, and my friend Connor had heard it. And then, then my brother Kieran, right after his exchange program in Costa Rica, oh, yeah, I also was an exchange student at the end of high school in Brazil for six months, which was really cool. He happened to come to San Francisco and I went and visited him in Costa Rica. We started sharing the songs that we had both been writing and the harmonies were just really blending and it was really beautiful. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. And so he, when he visited me out in San Francisco, instead of just a visit turned into us playing and people liking it. So it was kind of like, you know, living bare, bare, bare bones at that point like I said, very bare bones, slightly living in my van, slightly living uh, a few places. And but people were liking the music. So we were like, okay, this seems to be catching on. My friend Connor was there and he had been a bass player for a while. And so he was a friend from Ithaca, New York as well. And so we started just jamming it and the reception was great. So that's always usually, I think, what spurs people to keep going is people... "Quote unquote," loving it and having excitement grow, and so you're like, "Okay, I guess we should do this." So that's that was the birth of the Make Peace Brothers that started, kind of a collaboration. Me and my, me and my younger brother uh, Connor, Daphne. So that really started um, us on this new music path, which was more a bit more folk, folk centered, a bit more singer songwriter and uh, acoustic driven uh from the Oculus was more rock and roll and uh so yeah we started that and quickly started seeing that San Francisco was not really vibing in terms of where we wanted to be and so we were working at Cafe Gratitude at the time and yeah we started planning on how to move Cafe Gratitude down to LA and then it's the plans that were supposed to take 9 months didn't take nine months, but Kieran and I were like, okay, we got to go anyway. So we we made our way down to LA. We were like, we can't wait for this restaurant to move there, which ended up being another three years later, um, three or four years later. And uh, so we just went down to LA and Connor, Connor followed suit pretty soon after, and we were down in LA again, shoe stringing it. I don't know how to say, but like, uh, you know, sharing a room, just really trying to make music a go at music but with looking back on it with like it's really silly to try to make your way in music with zero upon zero next time if I if I have another life I would definitely like figure out how to get some some funding behind me but we we went all all out at it and had to make these brothers
0: just trying to like perform anywhere you could like were you like making demos trying to get them
1: yeah, making demos, um, and then we had a really lucky moment where this is where we started cross, crossing paths with you. So we met uh, John Morrow in San Francisco when we were still the band up there, and one day John Morrow was a good, great friend of ours, and one day Jason Raz was in town, and we all sat together, and uh, we heard... <laughs> Jason was debating on on which song should be the single for his next album or which song we thought would be the most popular for his next song. And, uh, so he played on yours and we were like, uh, definitely that one. <laughs> He's like, are you sure? And we're like, uh, yeah, bro, that's a hit, but not that we were the ones <laughs> to film, but all of us collectively were sitting around the, the dinner table. Like, uh, yeah, that's definitely the one. And, uh, it was about, I don't know how many months later that, that it was released, but, um, so we we had that moment. And then because our, our music and vibe was kind of happening, there was these conversations that were going of like, well, maybe we we do something together. Um, John Morrow is kind of a maverick of friendship connection uh, making. And he's an artist, he's by been the way, a guest who Trisha and I both know really yeah. well. Oh, he's been a guest. So he was kind of instrumental in connecting us uh, to both uh, Jason Mraz, Bushwala, um, Trisha, and uh, a bunch of other people like Justin Wilman.
0: This also was a guest,
1: <laughs> and Mike Scheibel, and and so we ended up moving to LA, and this conversation was already brewing about a potential tour with the magician Justin Wilman.
0: Oh, so that was right when you guys were mo- we had moved to LA.
1: As we were moving to L.A., that had that had already started to be kind of like,
0: well, what if?
1: Uh, so we moved to L.A. in August, and that started to be a conversation September-ish. And then by December, January, that was becoming a much more serious conversation because Jason was going to launch the beginning part of his uh, tour, um, yours tour, uh, in April. So then it started, you know, December, January, started being more serious conversations about music magic make piece.
0: Yeah. That did happen very quick then for making the choice to move to LA and having some sort of break that would be, yeah, a big break going on tour. Yeah.
1: Well, we didn't know. I mean, we were like, oh yeah, haha, ha, that would be cool. But then, uh, so that whole fall, we were just kind of making, making life work there. And and did that. Yeah. So that spring, we were lucky enough to go on tour with uh, Jason Mraz, open up uh, Bushwalla, uh, uh, make Peace brothers and Justin woman. Uh, it was, it was an incredible experience. It was a month long tour. You were on the whole tour or most of it?
0: No. Cause that was when my father passed away.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, because you had been there. We'd been, but I started the tour and I had to leave because I just couldn't handle it. So, like, yeah, that's right. So, we had met before then. Um, Right. Yeah, I was trying to think of when I gave you my car. It must have been after that.
1: Oh my gosh. Flashback. (laughs) Like,
0: gave. Yeah. My. Forerunner, yeah, straight which is straight a up. funny story. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe that was after, because I probably needed my, yeah, because I needed my car that whole year, because I ended up leaving the tour, and it was probably the following year when I was going. That yeah, was yeah, like that a year and a half after on tour in yeah, 2009. Yeah. So this was 2008. Yeah, it was like so excited we were going to go on this tour with all these awesome people that he just named. But my father passed away suddenly. From the funeral, I flew to Australia to tour with Jason. Came back. So I did two weeks of touring in Australia and Asia and was a mess. Came back That's to the right. States and as soon as we landed, rehearsals that I was like running. <laughs> right. And I was a yeah. disaster and a mess. And I went out on the U.S. tour and I don't even know if I lasted a week. I was so a mess and like devastated and having all these like life ahas that's you know of like what am I doing with my life I feel like I need to be doing more even though I love this and I'm like on my dream tour with all my favorite people like I loved touring I love doing mm-hmm. sound and I was with not just Jason my favorite touring crew but all of you guys that had become like my new awesome friends and I was just like I gotta I don't know what's going on but I have got to leave and hmm you know, figure my life out, <laughs> rethink everything. So That's I ended up right. leaving. It. So yeah, so I was only on that tour yeah. for like a week or two. Yeah,
1: mostly the just the California run, right?
0: Yeah, probably. I remember I flew to Chicago just because the flight was already in my name or whatever, and like and and like went oh, and stayed right. in Chicago and like saw the show, but it was like dumb Oh my god, yeah, you just crazy flashbacks.
1: The Chicago that the 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 bus from California to Chicago. I had you know we had already done four or five shows and that for me back to back was like a bit stressed on my, my voice. But later on in my life, realizing that stress about your voice was by far the worst thing than anything like worrying about, is my voice going to go, do I need to drink more honey? What should I eat? Like all the things that I was stressing about, this is many years later realizing this, but like, is the most stress on your voice that you could possibly give it, than like just relaxing and singing. But then I was like, oh my god, my voice is starting to go. All right, drink more <laughs> honey. Drink more tea. Do this. Like, don't eat that. But anyway, I just had a <laughs> flash from memory. So, any musicians out there, singers out there, at least for me, the stress about your voice is by far the and, worst. Yeah, I was thing a monitor engineer
0: for like a decade, and that every artist that I worked with for a long time had their own like. Routine or thing that they drank or took. Like one person took this certain lozenge, and we'd have to have like so many lozenges. One person did this apple cider, this. Right, Some person right. only drank ice cold water. Some per- like it was like everybody that I've worked with has had their like thing that, like,
1: <laughs> that's what, <laughs> what my thing ended up becoming was just like, don't worry about your voice. And that was just like, ah. Oh. And then all of a sudden, my voice was <laughs> fine for the rest of my singing career because I wasn't stressing about it. That was funny.
0: It's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief, important message, (laughs) push, urge, suggestion. I love my infrared sauna blanket. Now, really, it looks like a sleeping bag, but you don't sleep in it. (laughs) But you've heard of infrared saunas and probably you imagine the wood like boxes. Those are amazing, but they take up a lot of space. They're also pretty costly. I don't have the place for that in my life right now. But this infrared sauna blanket is amazing and affordable. Well, way more affordable than the box. And they give you an interest free payment plan. And I'll give you a code for $75 off. And you can fold it up and put it anywhere. Like I put it in the bottom of my closet. Super easy. And you can also use it anywhere. I lay mine on my floor and watch TV while I'm using it. I've also used it on top of my bed. What does it do? High makes you sweat. Basically, you get in it, you sweat, sweat, sweat. And it's a detox. It is so healing for me in my mind, my body, my nervous system. It's a giant reset. I sometimes wake up early, restless and do it in the morning. Sometimes do it before bed, midday. I do it all the time, no matter what time of day. And it changes how I feel in my body, my mind so, so, so much. I highly recommend checking it out. You know, I have chronic pain from fibromyalgia, so it helps that. I know it helps a lot of other people with similar issues. Also, just like working out pain or, you know, you are not able to get as much movement in. If you're sore from driving, from sitting too long just emotional stress. Again, it like gives me this like cozy space. I wear long pants, long shirt, socks. I lay in mine at about a seven or eight. There's number dial to choose your level. Keep water nearby, watch a show, and I can totally zone in to a show. Watch Kiss the Ground, maybe. <laughs> And yeah, it feels amazing after. Feel free to ask me any questions about it again at your joyologist, DM me, and go ahead and go to the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly, so that's bit, B-I-T dot L-Y backslash Joy Sauna, and you'll get taken right to it. And if you use my code Joy75, you'll get $75 off. So bit.ly backslash Joy Sauna, You can also DM me and I'll give you the link straight to it and use the code JOY75 for $75 off. I bought mine two years ago. I use it several times a week. Seriously, one of the best purchases I have ever, 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 ever made. Okay, back to the episode. Okay, so then that tour... What did that end up doing for you guys when you got off the tour? Yeah. Like, did you have some sort of like money to live off of, some sort of notoriety to like, because that's also like, that's a small, it's it's a big tour, but also like not super. Yeah. It's
1: kind of, it's, I think it's for, for everyone who's, who's in the music and in the hustle.
0: It's a freaking hustle.
1: It's, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And building and having, you know, that building and frame in mind and looking back on it, I really wish I had had more of a mentor around how to build your music career and where it's going and what it means. And, uh, but we were so bare bones. And again, like just to financially put it in perspective, like no money from family, broker than a joke going into that tour. Like no, zero, literally zero money. And then having per diem, which was great, getting a paid a bit for the tour, selling CDs was our, our main way to make money. So we sold the hell out of CDs and we did it like hardcore, probably a bit too unabashed and unshameful. Um, talk about shoulds. Uh, we let the shoulds of shouldn't push CDs on people out the window and we, we sold a bunch of CDs. But we were doing it kind of out of survival mode, which is looking back on it, there's good. And there's bad for that. And the consequence of like, if you're not in the hustle, um, you tend to be not pushing yourself out enough. If you're too much in the hustle, you push away people who think you're, you know, over the top and in the push. So it's a really interesting place to be as someone who's in, in music, trying to get your music out there. But like, if you don't sell enough CDs, yeah you're not gonna pay rent kind of deal so that's for me looking back on i was like man i i shouldn't have been so concentrated on making a living as a as a musician in those moments and more about how am i building this because it was i had too much kind of pride and i got to do this myself i got to make this music thing work myself um without like reaching out to people who probably could have supported financially to make it not easier, but to make it actually more of a business make sense as a growing business versus like, you're starting a business with zero cash. And your only way is just by selling CDs and getting, you know, just bad business model for making a a band move into the next level. So coming off that tour, the expectations were really high, you know, but it was all on me, basically. And the band was there, but I was, I was kind of our manager and our agent. And we had manager who was also helping us a bit at the time. But it was mostly on what I was doing to build our next part of the tour. So we booked a tour in in England. But that was, again, like counting on some people there who told us they were going to book shows and that it was going to work. But it was done in so much haste and without any experience and without any real solid connections and it was like more for the sake of what is what's next for well, you guys like, you like kind of on that on question the, like oh you, you just run to an a tour with Jason Maras and you're like oh we got we got to have an answer we like let's go to let's do a tour in England which was an answer for people it did like kind of like oh cool but now they're going to England doing tour but the tour was not set up wise or set up with any real means for you know we had some radio shows there was some cool stuff that happened but it wasn't set up for success whatsoever. And that part really was just like zero knowledge about uh, the music industry in that front. So looking back, it was kind of like, Oh my gosh, like we were just jumping forward with whatever we thought we could. And kind of like there wasn't a, there wasn't a support system really that was helping make it work. It was kind of just inventing craziness and riding the wave.
0: So how, like, when did you start to steer away from or expanding, not even steering away, but expanding from like, okay, maybe I want to do more with my life than just focus on music. Or when did you start to like, yeah, sort of start putting music in the background or to the side? Things kept on getting better. So So it was, (laughs) even though we're talking about that, like things did get better. So you're on the train.
1: Yeah, of course. So, so that was, that was the, the summer after that tour, uh, Spring into summer. It was just really intense. Kieran moved back to Ithaca for a couple of months and I was in LA by myself. But just to fast forward, I'll just breeze through it really quick. We started getting into the college market. Justin Willman was huge in the college market. And I kind of was like, okay, dollar Great. signs, what I can push myself, called? I can book myself.
0: Okay. Yeah. Mona Naca, and just because yeah. Mona was also a guest <laughs> of both talk, talk about Yeah. They
1: were also doing Raining Jane, Raining Jane. So, but you know, it was a tra- it was also a trap too. It was a good idea, but it was a trap because it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily building a fan base right. in the world. It was, I got to make money. I can, I can sell myself. And so we went the major hustle on that and yeah, it paid for us to live in Los Angeles, which again, but the hustle and you know, people be like, Oh, oh, you get to be a musician, being like, yo, do you know what it's like to be your own agent and manager and book this stuff and go into this with, you know, people be like the 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 amount of shame people are willing to not shame isn't the right word, but uh you know, no shame. Like you but you basically have to be like, okay, I'm putting myself out there and willing to to hear no's and willing to, you know, negotiate prices that are ridiculously low. And like, anyway, so that was kind of our bread and butter for, for a while. And then we started to build, build even more. The band started getting bigger and then we started getting notoriety and, um, things were really going great in a lot of ways, bigger, bigger gigs. The band was expanding to get a drummer and this is years after, this is by the time I'm like, I don't know, 27 or so. We started getting, you know, bigger paying gigs and, and this and that and then things started going even bigger and it was like okay now now's the time we bring back the older brothers into the band and it's all seemed like a good idea because that was kind of like the family band how could it how could it be how, this could be so amazing four brothers in a band and the make Peace brothers goes from two brothers to four brothers wow and this is great and this is like a big opportunity so that was kind of the phase three i would say of the make peace brothers was bringing the brothers out and it was at that time we were kind of courting record companies and stuff so there's this whole big push and it was a lot of turmoil my older brothers are just turmoil engines and uh tons of angst and arguments and tons of that which was really burdensome for me and uh i kind of was the front man as well as the the galvanizer of the whole thing. And it was just overwhelming to have family drama every single day present, um, all again, sharing a house. And my brothers had moved out to LA, you know, from lives and in New York. So they were like feeling the stress of that. And so it was really mounted stress, but there's also promising signs. Like we were getting, we, we had a quote unquote deal from Warner Bros, which was really like, Oh my God, here it comes. And then the head of Warner Bros went to go record, uh, an album with whatever that band is called. And uh, it kind of fizzled out for a second. then it came back and was going to happen. It was just like, we were signed and then we, it got just pushed to the side for a bit. And then by the time that fall, that was like June. And then by the time that fall ran around, things were so tumultuous in the band at that point. Um, And also the head of Warner Bros was about to get fired. So as he was getting fired, we kind of got left out of the, the mix and that was kind of the, the collapse
0: so you like we're like we did it we've got this is it we've been working for it. we're fought fi- we have the deal
1: i mean literally we had the moment of we were all in the in the car together it was like here we are and this is 10 you know was at that point eight years in the making of the band and you know it was like all this work for me it was like my baby i had finally like done it and made it and uh wow what a crushing fall that was into the winter and That was probably my darkest time in my life was the collapse of my band and it was just really really difficult like so much work and people you know however you want to view music life it's one of the hardest professions to make it in uh, if you come from nothing and i had put so much in so much energy so much blood sweat and tears and it was like collapsing all around me and it was extremely dark i went into a pretty dark place which for me as an optimistic Finian guy, I'm very rarely yeah, in, hard to was, it was, there. it was darkness. And I, I had never really experienced darkness that people talk about depression, but I did. Yeah, that was rough. So then, uh, then it kind of was like, um, simultaneously I had seen the revelation of what is the option for climate change? What is the option for humans actually being able to face climate change in a way that is constructive? be able to face desertification, be able to face water security, all these things threatening our species and the very life of our planet. I had learned from a gentleman named Graham Sate uh, through a four-hour conversation, uh, four-hour presentation, uh, that we can rebuild soil faster than we ever thought possible. So as my as my life was collapsing...
0: And how did you end up at that presentation?
1: Well, Ryland Engelhart, who is a friend, friend from Ithaca, New York as well.
0: Which we had. Mo- I've had Molly on and Tercey's. I've yet to have Ryland or Matthew, but yeah.
1: Ryland was in New Zealand. Uh, so we've been family friends. He's one of the owners of Cafe Gratitude. Um, he was the one back, back when we were going to move uh, Cafe Gratitude down to L.A. He was one of the people going to be doing that. So he was in New Zealand watching a panel of scientists talking about can human beings sustain themselves on planet earth. First five expert scientists said, no, because we're, we're on this trajectory of completely degrading the earth and and destabilizing it. And the last guy said, yeah, what they said is true, but we've all forgot about this potential called we can help rebuild soil faster than we ever thought possible. And this kind of blew Ryland's mind as someone who was in the organic food movement being like, I had never heard about this before. So he taps me kind of as his activist friend of like, dude, I think you're going to have your mind blown by this guy. And so he invited Graham to stop in LA to give a presentation to us. So Graham gave a four-hour lecture that was truly mind-boggling. And just to backtrack a bit, growing up with Cornell University, uh, in 12th grade of high school, I was in in a biology class where we actually, an AP bio class, where for a whole semester, we were helping Cornell University with this study about how oak groves were communicating and helping uh, give themselves uh, antidotes for airborne viruses. And it turned out it was the mycorrhizal fungi that were in the soil that were actually sending signals some two or three miles apart from each other to these trees. So this internet of the soil was being kind of discovered at that point. Lo and behold, mycorrhizal fungi obviously is now a huge part of my life because I talk about it all the time. I, I talk about soil all the time. So in this four-hour lecture, Graham State really lays down like, wait a minute. There's an opportunity humans weren't aware of, of which is our agriculture, which is currently causing the most destruction on the planet, can actually be the force of the most good. And the reason is, is we can take the carbon from the atmosphere that's currently causing a problem, pull it through plants, pump it into the ground, and create healthy soil. So that carbon that's a problem in the atmosphere is the solution if we build it into healthy soil, and we can do that faster than we ever thought. So this is huge news to me. I'm having light bulb moments go off. I have a pretty hefty background in soil science or, or biology science. And so I'm having all these dots connected. And that night, Ryland and I went to his house with a couple other folks and we, we shook hands and said, if this is all true, we quite literally have to dedicate. We feel obligated to dedicate our lives to help spread the message about this. So that, that day led into the next week. We said, we'll meet every Monday night. To figure out what to do wow. to get this out. And so a year later, Kiss the Ground, the organization was born. And our primary first uh, thing was, how are we going to share this message? How are we going to take this into the world and make it available for people to hear and know about? And that became you know, a strategy around media and communications of getting short-form media out to the world. Fast forward, I'll let you ask more questions. But yeah, it's basically... That was the birth of Kiss the Ground. Was that we can do this? Humans can actually help reverse climate change, secure water, create healthy food systems, and make our land fertile again.
0: And so that was when Ryland invited you to that four-hour seminar. Whenever that was, like how close to that was when the band and Warner Brothers falling through.
1: Warner Bros had fallen through some
0: okay. six months
1: before that um and then that happened and uh i got kind of a new spark in my life i was still trying to figure out band stuff though music was still happening like my brother two brothers started a band with some other women that was kind of happening and then that ended up starting to fall apart so as kiss the ground's going it's kind of like my outlet of like purpose in life and uh Kiss the Ground didn't exist yet. We were just like meeting and being excited about something. And
0: so what did you guys do? You were just like, we're going to meet every Monday and you would just like talk about what's happening, try to figure out like, what can we do with this information? Like you were just like getting together and having a conversation. Like we're all kind of blown away by this. What are we going to do?
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I uh, I have a, I've done a lot of kind of like activist work, agenda holding, facilitating work in my past. So it's like, Okay, Rylan was kind of the engine behind getting people some, you know, sometimes ten people, sometimes fifty people into his living room.
0: Oh, so it wasn't like the same people, the same people plus just anybody want to show up. We're Monday, we're talking about this. Yeah,
1: exactly. It was constantly like, okay, this is this is a huge idea. We'd kind of be rephrasing the concept.
0: That must be why I knew about it because I'm like, I remember you guys meeting, so I must have got invited because I'm like, why do I even remember know that you guys were
1: meeting? Yeah, we were we were just kind of going in like, what what are we going to do and. You know, there was ideas of start a compost company there's ideas of like oh do this like so many different ideas
0: well I remember the community garden being a, an early thing right or no
1: that was the first thing I mean we just we first we started out as right. a victory garden movement
0: like you had to like campaign though right for like a community garden in Venice
1: yeah we built a whole garden in Venice and that was extremely fun and exciting but as we started looking at it it was it was a you know such a big worldwide phenomenon and we started just getting clear on like, okay, I started doing local policy work, uh, unleashing that with the the city council of LA and we're just going all in.
0: And how do you get into that though? Like, hi, I just want to do, like, how did you start to do city policy work?
1: Uh, Well, that's a great, there's actually a, there's actually a great story there. So we're at the big oil pipeline demonstration And it happens to be the second time, this is the the following fall. So Graham comes the first time in the winter, the following fall, Graham comes to revisit and we're at this big demonstration. And I knew people who were holding the demonstration and I went up and I was like, Hey, I need you to get Graham to speak. So Graham speaks at that city hall event. And another person speaks at that city hall event. And this was a council member. And he, he said, look, we're overworked under staff. This was just about like oil and stuff. He's like, if you have ideas, tell us, come work with us. And so I had always been an activist. I had led countless demonstrations. I did the whole anti-Bush thing in San Francisco with, you know, the FBI list, the whole nine yards. So I have like a very heavy activist past. And so the demonstration and protesting side, I should say, but this moment changed my life was this guy said, we're overworked, understaffed. If you have ideas, the doors are open. Come talk to us. Let's work on things. And my, a light bulb went off and I was like, wait a minute. Why am I not writing this stuff? Why am I sitting here yelling and screaming and telling them to do better if they don't know? And so that was really a turning point for me. And this is uh, the following spring. Um, so that was like late fall, the following spring. I saw a major hole in the, in the compost, uh, ordinate or the compost component of the new, uh, franchise system for waste hauling for, for Los Angeles. We were going under, undergoing a huge new, uh, waste hauling franchise.
0: Wait. So that's like garbage. You put your garbage out with the green bin like that, but the
1: whole, yeah, exactly. The green blue bin, the whole thing, they were doing a whole new franchise. So it was going from like random haulers to different zones, new laws, new regulations, one half page of compost stuff. That was mostly like, we might continue doing this, we might continue doing that. I was like, this is some BS. I had befriended a council member's uh, environmental staffer. And I was like, we gotta get a coalition together. So I got a coalition together of people in a week. We wrote several pages of compost necessities for this RFP, for the new waste hauling laws. And we gave it to them. And within two weeks, they included all of our suggestions, overhauled, the completely overhauled the the new uh, RFPs, voted on it uh, a a week later. So within a month, we totally transformed Los Angeles 10-year contracts for for all the waste haulers to include composting. So that was kind of just like a heroic feat, but definitely teaches us that when we have ideas and we're able to articulate them. It's not that our policymakers aren't supportive. It's usually that they don't necessarily know or they don't have the time to develop them. So who are they listening to? It's people who write plans and put them on their desks so that they can sign them.
0: Like you made it easy for them. You gave them.
1: They're not looking for people who are telling them what they're doing wrong, and that they have to spend uh, three months researching and developing it. They don't have time for that. And so that's really what I learned is how we're going to change things is helping construct these ideas for people who are in leadership. So that was a, that was a fun example.
0: And so, so yeah, you guys had the community garden in Venice and then, you know, like what were the next like early ideas, like starting to hold like your own sort of talks and stuff, like bringing people together or?
1: Well, we start, we realized that the biggest hole was uh, communication of the idea in a bite-sized format. That was, that was obvious from the get-go from the first time we heard Graham was like, you looked on YouTube for this information. It was like vacant. So we were like, uh, we gotta make something that's tangible, um, c- comprehensive, not too long. So that turned into what is now called the soil story, which is our first kind of major piece of media that we created, which was a you know, four minute piece that is describing regenerative agriculture and carbon farming as this solution that was relatively unknown. Uh, possibility that was relatively unknown, so that kind of set us on the stage internationally as an organization that was serious. And uh, we launched that campaign a year and a half after Kiss the Ground was born, and we launched it with in support of California's Healthy Soil Program, which was trying to be passed. And we got twenty three thousand signatures in support. We had Jason Mraz there. We had a bunch of other musicians, Michael Fronti, a bunch of people who were endorsing this, uh, push for healthy soils program for California. So we didn't, we didn't pass it, but we helped get it passed by getting 23,000 signatures from all over California uh, and delivering those to the state legislators. So that was really cool. um, as a kind of entry into this movement in a big way. Um, we had also before that been kind of connecting with a bunch of the leaders in the space, uh, to get their ideas to make this uh, film. But that kind of put us on the map as an organization of, uh, okay, everyone is pointing to that from Australia to uh, Japan. And people were like, here is what we're talking about with this regenerative agriculture phenomenon. So they were, they were using our media mm. to explain the concept because before then there was research papers, two long, two hour long videos.
0: Go to a four hour seminar. Nobody's going to do that.
1: <laughs> right. There was nothing that was comprehensive, four minute animated piece That spelled it out so we had kind of achieved that goal that we had from the very get.
0: and at this time too is this all like all self-funded
1: we started getting into getting funders people behind this uh sharing the idea with them uh Ryland is an incredibly uh charismatic and inspiring person in terms of getting people to see a vision of of what we've formulated and uh, he, from the beginning, he's been kind of our, our biggest uh, lever for accessing funds to make things happen.
0: So yeah, like how, at what point were you able to, I'm guessing, be like employed to be able to show up to do this work that you're passionate about while also paying your bills? Is that something that...
1: <laughs> so um yeah, I was still making ends meet uh, through music mostly, but had kind of stopped touring. I spent basically three or four months heavily researching this. The first premise for me was if this is all true, I don't want to be a part of a BS movement here. I I went under the hood immediately. So that was unpaid. I was just sitting in the office or Ryland's garage every day, just researching the heck out of this. And in my own backyard or whatever it was, um, I was just going in to really find out if this was all true and of course the, the the deeper i got the more real and true it became and possible connecting with all these experts around the world who are leading it so that was just kind of passion and you know again willing to not live comfortably <laughs> has allowed me sometimes to do things that are outside the norm of like okay um not going to have very much food for a while. I'm going to research soil.
0: Right. Cause a lot of people are, okay, I need to working 30, 40, 50 hours a week to try to make the money. And then, okay, whatever's left here. And you're like,
1: I'm
0: going to put all my time here. Okay. Maybe I can try to play a gig to get some money to eat next week or whatever.
1: Yeah. Doing some (laughs) hustles, doing some things. Yeah. So that was kind of make this work versus work and then have a side thing. It was like, do what it takes to, to get this going. And then, um, you know, probably eight or nine months into that, we started having a little bit of money, like 500 bucks a month. <laughs> that was some <the> beginning salaries. <laughs> so that was kind of like how it started for me. And then just kind of built up from there. And it was like, okay, how do we bring in more people? How do we get our garden director? How do we, you know, how do we start having more people paid to to actually move this forward? And, but yeah, for me, it was like, I was kind of the, stake in the ground. Rylan Ryland was really like the bring it together, connect it to bigger outside sources. And I was kind of generator. I was kind of like the engine within of like engine, if engine doesn't <laughs> stop, we can, we can keep going. And Rylan is like the, the finding the fuel for it so that it actually can build and make it work. And so I was kind of just like, okay, I'm in, let's do this.
0: And at what point was it your guys's ideas then to try to go deeper? Like once you had made the four minute film to like, okay, we need more awareness out there. Like let's make a feature length film or like, or a full length film. I don't know what you call it.
1: (laughs) Well, interesting, quick story. Uh, Ryland's house, which we're turned into the kiss the ground office, which is where I ended up going to do most of my research and stuff. And where the early meetings in the living room were, were happening. Basically. The people who used to live there are Josh and Rebecca Tickell, filmmakers who made Fuel, the big fix, and also Kiss the Ground, the movie. Um, So they, Rylan had kind of been pushing to them, and another guy named uh, John Rulak had been pushing to them, you guys got to make a movie about this soil stuff. They were all like, "Uh, what? It took some pushing to get them to get it, and they had a couple of visits with us and playing some of the science, so they kind of got like a depth of like, oh, wow, this is actually – not just random hippie soil stuff. This is actually cool and exciting. So got them engaged, started that process that, that turned into a a six and a half year process to get the film out on Netflix. But
0: so you guys have been having this conversation for six and a half, seven years about making a documentary.
1: Yeah. The film is almost seven years old of like getting the documentary done and onto Netflix that was a very long process uh, many iterations of the film later finally made its way to Netflix. So, um, but on, in the process of that kiss the ground was growing and we knew that the center of our thing was, was sharing this message, making sure we can get it out to the world. And so we, we were cultivating that. So policy stuff was a part of our organization very early on, as well as the local community gardens and then the media stuff. So those were kind of our first three triad. And then um, I got pulled into our media department. So policy kind of shriveled up a bit, um, which was, you know, creating more short form media. We created, we've we created over, I don't know, three or 400 videos on this subject to kind of help people access this stuff, infographics, et cetera. You can check out kiss the ground.com to find out more about that. But then we, I started noticing, I was like, wait a minute, we don't have that much time. The world's desertifying it ridiculously alarming rates. I don't want to make everyone scared, but we're, we're going to perish if we don't regenerate our earth. I started realizing that if there weren't more advocates who had access to this information and could articulate it at least 20% as well as I was doing to the world, because at that point I was going to conferences, I was presenting this all the time, and I was saying, what if we expanded this? What if we had thousands and thousands of advocates around the world who could talk about this, uh, from people who own businesses, worked inside of businesses, farmers, uh, activists, environmentalists, kids in high school, kids in college—you name it. What if we had people who were already wanting to work on something, or already were good and gifted orators, or not gifted orators, or just people who were passionate? Whoever. What if we were giving them access to this information? So instead of it taking them five years to achieve the ability to present and have deck material for presenting.
0: Right. So instead of keeping everything like, wait, we have all this stuff for us to present it, but so we have to be hustling constantly to get ourselves out there. What if we share this information with other people that have the same passion or get them on board?
1: Exactly. What if we multiply the Finians and Rylands and Lauren and Tucker's like in the world? And that was basically, then I moved from our media department. I started our stewardship program, which was how do we train advocates to better uh, take this message to the world. So that was a couple years ago. And so we started these online trainings um, that were live broadcast and people would tune in. And so we trained about 3000 people from over 30 different countries. And then with the launch of the film this summer, we completed an evergreen version of the soil advocate training course, which now makes it like a masterclass where you can just tune in whenever, you don't have to wait for the live sessions.
0: So yeah, somebody's listening to this. They're interested. They can go and start it immediately. Yeah.
1: Right. You can just get going on that. It's like masterclass, if you've ever seen that, of Soil Advocate Training. And now we're going to be adding multiple other courses. Like We had a regenerative gardening course this last year that was also live. We're turning one of those into an evergreen course. We're going to be doing lots of different courses on that side. So that's our stewardship program is how are we training people, whether it's urban gardening or... Activism for urban spaces, farm country right. businesses moving, taking that's the so helm. Because yeah, like you know,
0: you know, I yeah, somebody who's a local farm could go talk to the liquor or They work at a restaurant. They could talk to whatever. You know, it's, there's so many different ways that it right. could show up.
1: Are they empowered to be messengers and or be shifters of where things are going on policy in their business? in someone else's business, on their land, whatnot. So that's kind of a starting kit for like, how do you be an activist? The other program we have is our farmland program, which is really about how are we actually transitioning land to regenerative? And this is where we're creating scholarship opportunities for farmers to get access to the premier training in regenerative agriculture. So there are groups like the Soil Health Academy who are in the film Kiss the Ground Who have really amazing training programs. And so we're saying, okay, farmers don't necessarily have the the means or or ability to pay for this full training. How do we take them on a three year program and have soil testing and training and comprehensive coaching throughout this so that they can successfully transition their land to regenerative, start sequestering carbon, start increasing biodiversity, start helping their watershed and and, uh, water absorption capacity? How are we going to do that? And this is where ongoing training was the resounding answer to that. So we've provided the, the access point. So we bring in funds to give farmers scholarships to take advantage of that opportunity to be uh, become regenerative farmers.
0: So amazing.
1: And then of course, we have our media program, which is always making media like the film, like the short films, like the infographics.
0: Yeah. And what is the impact now that the film has been out on Netflix for a little while? Like, is it hard to tell besides the fact of like I saw a lot of people share in that first week that don't know like I was like oh hey my friend whatever but I saw lots of people sharing wow this is M- M- that don't know you guys and like whatever and so that was really cool but like how do you know like yeah can you tell if an impact is starting to be made
1: yes for sure um not just the uh, because so many people who are in the movement are seeing the ripple effects but yeah. Cause this, this was trending, it was trending on Netflix, which was a bump that we didn't know or expect to happen. But once it was trending on Netflix in the U S it was on everyone's Netflix homepage for two or three weeks, which was amazing. So that was incredible for how far it ended up reaching. So that wasn't just people who searched for kiss the ground. It was, it was getting watched by a boatload of new people. And this has meant uh, huge things for policy, for, kind of general what we would call political will that the movement has now for the relevance of regenerative agriculture and soil health. Uh, It's basically rising tide metaphor. Like we just created a major rise in the tide uh, for, for what's being kind of now becoming normalized of what people are talking about.
0: Yeah. I mean, because I assume even if, yeah, like it's going to take time for people to, that people have farms, whatever, to integrate that information to make the changes happen. But like that, there has to be so much more awareness now of something that I'm guessing, like, do you even think that a lot of people knew about this at all?
1: No, most people didn't know at all. But what's even more exciting to me is to hear kind of the the passionate people who've been pushing this being like, I've been telling the government of, of Azerbaijan about this for eight months. And they were like, no, no, no. And then they watched the film and they were like, oh my gosh, we're going to do this with our whole government. Or like, I've been telling my uncle and my dad about this forever. And they were like, no, 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 you're crazy. And then they watched the film and they want to be like this, this farmer or that. So those are, I think, are the, the most exciting stories for me. Is kind of the people who are hearing about it or people who are kind of meh, meh getting uh, inspired that they can take part in this revolution of of how we manage land and it can actually be financially successful for them it can be good for their biodiversity it can be good for their for their future for their kids to inherit the land so that's what i'm really excited about and also of course the the newbies who are finding passion in their lives we have countless people signing up for soil advocate training coming out of this who are like i saw the film this is the answer for where my energy should go for the rest of my life put me in coach ready to go so That's really cool.
0: And what for people that are just like, oh, I don't have a farm. I don't even have a garden. I'm not going to garden. Like, are there things that people can do to make a difference?
1: So, Tricia, I was a touring musician and now I'm a leading soil (laughs) evangelist. (laughs) And so it doesn't matter where you're at, what you're doing. You can make huge splashes and help this movement. Well,
0: I mean, even like in your own, like physically, besides sharing about it and stuff.
1: I I know. I I was just telling people first, yes, I'll tell you about that. Yeah,
0: no, I've been shocked this whole time. It's just so funny. That's why I like to ask these questions. Well, like, why were you even at that guy's thing? Or like, what were you, like, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's amazing that you watched, how many other people heard that guy's talk and were like maybe blown away, but didn't do anything. And you just dedicated your entire life
1: (laughs) Well, I had oh another fun part is I had a really big priming moment uh, about six or eight months before Graham. I had a dream that changed my life. Really, um, I've always been an environmentalist. Always been tuned into like what's happening.
0: Well, yeah, I guess you did like grow up in the forest. <laughs> that probably helps. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> totally. I mean, I had a garden with my mom, and like I I. Yeah, my priming for hearing this idea and being like, this is the big answer, was pretty landing. I think a lot of people are like, yeah, okay, this is amongst other things I've heard. I heard this and was like, there is gosh darn nothing else that even compares, glaringly, nothing else that compares to the relevance that this can have for humans sustaining themselves or even being able to exist on this planet, like period nothing. But to go back to what I was going to say is I had this moment where I had a dream where I was this old man living in a refugee camp in Brazil because global climate change had gone crazy and actually shifted the Atlantic into the current, the Gulf Stream. You know about that? If we go, if we get too much ice melt and everything, we can actually slow that current, which will make a big ice age happen again. Anyway. That's science. But my dream, that ice age had hit because of it and happened very quickly. And millions of people were displaced, billions of people displaced. And I was living in a refugee camp in Brazil. And in this refugee camp, my daughter wakes me up uh, in the middle of the night and she's like, I found my granddaughter, pardon me. And she's like, I'm old at this point, like 90 or something. And she's like, I found a hole in the fence. Let's go. And so we sneak out of the refugee camp. And we walk throughout the rest of the night. And as the dawn's approaching, we come over the crest of this hill. And out in front of us is this city that's just totally destroyed, completely abandoned, destroyed city. And she just looks up at me and she's got tears streaming down her eyes. And she's just like, why did you let this happen? And so I was stunned at that. And I I woke up and was like, you can't just be... A semi-activist musician guy, you're going to have to do something, and you're going to have to not have an answer to that question. Be I didn't have enough time,
0: or I didn't, you know, care. What enough. had you watched before you went to sleep that night? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know, but it was
1: a turning <laughs> amazing, point because yeah, it really like, had where me. Where
0: was your mind?
1: I had to reckon with uh, reckon with kind of the the comfort, or not the comfortability, but just kind of the 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 mediocre version of shifting things that I had been playing in. And, you know, I thought I was an activist in my own right, but it definitely put the the alarm bells on of like, yeah, you could end up being that guy. And very well, likely that's the, that's the trajectory we're on. So it's still the most likely scenario, but I'm not willing to, to go down without a huge fight. So that was the, the big setup the big primer for me was that wow. moment
0: so then yeah you were going to say is there things like actually like in their life besides speaking up and telling people whatever like which is necessary share the film share whatever do the advocacy training but yeah like
1: totally i think the number one thing that i recommend people to do is to compost because like, it's compost so yourself. connected compost your stuff commit to it
0: and that's not just putting stuff in the green brin.
1: <laughs> you could, if that's what you can do. That's a step. But the first thing I want to say is commit to it. When you really commit to things in your life, like a lot of people be like, I'm going to commit to being a good parent or whatever. Like you really take it seriously. Or you commit, I'm going to show up at my job on time. Like We take some commitments in our lives really seriously. I want people to take composting seriously and say, I'm going to commit to it. Because when you commit to it, you're willing to YouTube videos when it doesn't work the first time to figure out how to make it work. You don't just stop it like oh, I tried composting once; it made it stinky. I, I don't like it. I, my wife said it stunk, so I can't do it. Like, like no.
0: So instead of saying I'm going to try composting, I commit to composting. So then, when you want to give yes, up, you're like, not,
1: I'm going to try composting.
0: <sighs> I did commit. Oh, I have
1: to figure out how I don't have to do this. No, you have to figure out how to do this. So. Every, you know, recommendations for people is like, put your scraps in the freezer in a container so that they don't get flies and stinky stuff. Because when, when you sit it out on your freezer, or out on your counter, you're going to get anaerobic digestion, which is when it gets all wet. And it basically makes it so it stinks and creates anaerobic digestion, which is gross. Put it in your freezer. It'll make all the flies go away and it'll make it so you don't have gross, slimy stuff to drop in your compost anyway. Cause when it's frozen, it's just like frozen scraps. Cause you don't put it in gross. You just put it in as scraps of food. So then when you throw it in your compost bin, you can actually just move it around with a shovel or your hand because it's not like gilly, gross, yucky stuff now. So that's the first thing, put your compost in the freezer. Second thing is put a bin of dry material like leaves or things you're able to, to rake up in your yard that have fallen around that are brown or newspapers, create a bin to the side of your compost where you put those, uh, carbon based materials so that when you put your food scraps in, which are heavy nitrogen based, you can balance them with your carbon. So try to like, like a dog or an animal does when they defecate in the woods, they try to put something over it. That's to reduce flies and pests and vermin and things that are going to create disease. You want to do the same thing with your compost, cover it up. uh, And so that you have kind of a layered effect happening. Whenever time you put any high nitrogen things, which are your food or your green material, like uh, when you fresh uh, cut grass, you can have uh, a combination about fifty percent of brown material, which is your carbon base. Uh, then water it. You know, water your compost every uh, month or so. Sometimes more or less. Have some kind of stick or pitchfork so you can kind of break it up. If it starts smelling, break it up, turn it a little bit so that the the carbons balance out closely with the the nitrogens, and uh, that'll be your your compost. Um, the cool thing about composting is when you produce your compost after a few months or six months. The black gold that you get at the bottom of it is unbelievable. And you'll have an experience, a life-changing moment where you get to have done it. And it's so rewarding because you put that stuff on your yard or you put it on your garden. And it has so many multitude of benefits of helping regenerate your landscape.
0: And do you guys have resources on Kiss the Ground or... YouTube or whatever, like the best yeah. uh, composters for like. Oh, I just live in an apartment. I live in. I have a small yard. I have like land. Yeah. Do you guys have like the resources on favorites? Totally.
1: And if we don't have yeah. them, YouTube has them. <laughs> so yeah, worm composting for apartments, uh, tumblers for if you don't have any grass or any ground exposed. If you right. just have cement, um, there's there's a bunch of different ways you can you can do it. But composting is is definitely. Huge because when you see how much you're throwing out of organic material that could be helping to regenerate land, uh, and you see how much you're going into your your uh, trash, it's just it's crazy. Like when you do first challenge, Tricia if you can tell your listeners, one week, put your container for your compost in your freezer. Watch how much compost you get in one week just by putting all your scraps or food scraps or whatever into that compost. And also for small compost bins, don't put meat uh, and heavy dairy and always break apart your food when you throw it in. So it doesn't uh, stagnate and increase anaerobic digestion. But
0: so like the opposite, let's say people, when people don't care and, or don't think about it and they put everything in the, whatever. Yeah. I, different people have different in California. We have the Brown bin, which is just garbage, non-recycling, whatever. But a lot of people throw recycling in there too. So if you're putting your food scraps with cardboard, with paper, with magazines, with glass, like if it's everything mixed together,
1: That's all It becomes trash and it's impossible.
0: So you're, it's like, you're wasting all of these things that could be creating, helping to.
1: There are some dirty MRFs that work on it and can make it happen, but very few actually do it successfully. So a lot of that ends up getting thrown away if you don't properly do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's what I was just sort of like saying, like you're, you could be saving these things to create soil and to create, redo the, yeah. Create carbon and everything. Regenerate to be trying to say what I'm doing.
1: When you put compost on your grass, for example, you can reduce your water usage in a huge way. Uh, you also increase the photosynthetic capacity of your grass, because you have slow release nutrients, which means more carbon is taken from the atmosphere, pumped into the ground to feed microbes in your soil, which builds soil. So compost application is jump-starting the soil regeneration process by acting as a probiotic for our soils.
0: It's a lot of information. <laughs> <It's>
1: like, <laughs> Other things people can do is go to SoilPolicyAction.us. This is a brand new site we just made for uh, being able to tell your representatives, "Hey, you watch Kiss the Ground the movie? I just watched it." Like you can just straight up message them, Twitter them, whatever you want on SoilPolicyAction.us, and this is a way to, to, to play a part in, in moving policy forward and getting policymakers to be more aware of the potential for regenerative agriculture.
0: Awesome. I love that tip. And we'll put that link in the show notes.
1: And then if the last thing is go to ground.com and find your path. This is a really great way where we've catered to whatever your interests are, Trace, Tricia. You can basically go in there and say, Oh, I like books. I like uh, activism. I like science. And then those recommendations to you are catered to your interests. Uh, and so people can go there to find your path.
0: Wow. You guys have done so much. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> Just getting started.
0: Um, okay, I'm going to get to the questions I ask everybody, which is first, do you see this these phrases? So these are all mm-hmm. phrases that go on keychains for my product line and I ask everybody to pick not necessarily which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel they want as a reminder in their life right now and why.
1: Mm. I'm gonna go with "See the Good."
0: And why are you feeling that one?
1: Because I'm needing some of that potion right now. After yesterday and today, we're
0: currently recording this uh, election week. Yeah, the day after the election, when things are when we're talking, we still don't have the details.
1: <laughs> but it, it goes it goes with so much of my life, where I'm up against a lot of challenges. I'm I'm moving some heavy policy stuff and there's different opinions. And I, I, I just need that reminder. I do. Cause it's, it's, there's so much good happening and so much momentum. And I, I can sometimes get distracted by the negative and the, the positive is, is where the waves are riding for me. So yeah. I got to keep riding them.
0: All right. what is a it go to, to raise your joy levels? Maybe you did just get a no or <laughs> denied <it> or <laughs> you're supposed to, you're to go talk, whatever. Boost your joy levels.
1: Uh, good conversations and working out I, yeah. I, would say.
0: Uh, I ask everybody to apply this phrase to their life what is easiest for you is not always what is best for you so uh, being like what is easiest for me is blank what is best for me is blank It could just be like a way of being a habit uh...
1: <laughs> what is easiest for me is zoning out on Instagram <laughs> 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 what is best for me is having a routine for the day, of a uh, calendarized routine for the
0: day. Got it. All right. The last thing is the name of the podcast is Claim It, and that is because I believe... That our feelings of being enough, successful, worthy, fulfilled, lovable, whatever it is that we're seeking, searching for. So you got to follow the leader like we were talking about early on from elementary school or whatever it is now as adults are not out there somewhere. Once I get the job, once I get the record deal, once the movie's out, whatever it is, once these things happen, then I will feel it. And you likely will, but... Something we gotta claim for ourselves every single day, sometimes every moment of the day, otherwise we're just gonna keep putting it outside yeah. of ourselves. So what are you claiming for yourself right now?
1: I'm claiming for myself that it it in many different respects is happening
0: that's I had a magnet made last year that just said it's all happening like over and over and over. That was like my mantra, like all last year about getting a book deal. <laughs> And that was me. Like yeah, always, I'd be like, "It's really this. true. Oh, it's it, too hard. I don't know. I can't do it." And i just be like, "It's all happening. It's all happening."
1: <laughs> it is. It's happening, and and I think it's a presencing thing too. Because, yeah, what you said is is couldn't be further from the truth. I think John Mayer said it once. We're just like, unless I'm conscious of it and practicing gratitude or whatever. I'm no more happy now than I was when I, you know, had no money and was touring or whatever. Like happiness is so based on how much you focus on being happy about it. Like, yeah, our film just came out. We, we've gone through the, to the bottom of the pit during this film launch because of things. So just because something's happening that you've, you've waited for doesn't mean that you're going to feel the good vibes from it all of a sudden. It's
0: Yeah. It's like you will likely get a little of it, but then the next thing pops up or like, oh yeah, then there's a hater. Then there's a new doubt up here as a fear. Then oh wait, now I made it. So what's the next step? Or whatever it is. Like there's always a next moment there to steal it away from you.
1: <laughs> like <laughs> that's, that's the that's the age old thing where it's like not enoughness, what has it done for me lately? Sometimes it's good. Most of the time it's bad. Where's that balance of not, not treating it as not enoughness, but like, this is a part of a path that it's happening path that I'm on. And the it's not enoughness conversations have, you know, in some sneaky way, sometimes it driven us to achieve or serve the world in a bigger way. Um, And then you're like, well, shoot, how do I convert that? Because I know that that's useful energy to some degree, but how do I convert that into more of a good uh, energy format where it is the, it's happening, it's the gratitude thing, where, you know, the head down grinding things, where those like desire to achieve something that's far fetched and big and audacious is like, Are you really going to stay up late and do all these things and like stress yourself out? Well, if I don't do that, then these other things aren't possible. And this isn't, so it's like the growth curve. I've really been trying to pay attention to the lessons of people who've gone through transformations of, of themselves and be like, learn from these people because they are on a journey and they're seeing the future. And that's why they can keep going in a rigorous way because they're seeing what's, what's happening later. And that's where I've been really trying to work on, like seeing the future happen and then living into it and creating what has to happen to get it there. So it's like sometimes the, the now moment living is great in some respects, but it also stresses you out if you can't like put one foot in front of the other to get to that thing. It's inevitably going to come five years is going to come five years from now is going to be here what have I set up for that? And what have I set up for tomorrow? Like every, everything.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting balance. Cause it is like, yeah, it's like, a, I, it's, I'm not saying to like not have goals and achieve things, but also then coming back to like, yes, I want this thing to happen. And I want this cause it's not even for my own best, but for the good it's going to do. But then also in taking care of yourself for like, okay, I can go to bed right now. Like, I feel fulfilled that I'm doing this work, even though this isn't done yet. So, like, yeah, that thing and like bringing yourself into that present moment of that way where, yeah. So it's because, yeah, it can lead to the constantly you got to keep going, keep going, keep going to get there. And so, it's like, the balance of trying to, oh, I'm enough. I'm fulfilled. I'm successful right now, even though I'm working on this thing that's like, that's like real success. Cause it's, there's always different layers.
1: Yeah. I think sometimes it's just, I, that's part of the, the combing away is like taking away what that, that thing yeah, is going to mean success. Exactly. Being like, okay, I'm successful now. It doesn't mean that like I need to slow down. I am who I am. I'm an overachiever to some people's eyes and underachiever to other people's eyes. Whatever. I am who I am and I'm I'm driven to do more things. But if I take away the, like the, the meaning of like, oh, this is the successful thing that means to be like, that's never going to give me the return on investment in that mindset. So,
0: yeah. Well, most of the times I think people are chasing this feeling that they haven't even like considered what it will feel like, <laughs> you know, it's like, what would that even feel like now it'll be enough? Like, what does that actually feel like? Like there's not, there's always gonna be something else. So like, yeah, like finding that piece of like, I can yeah. claim my success right now, my worth, my value, my joy, all of it no matter what I've done today or this year in this life.
1: (laughs) Totally. Everyone's dealing with burdens of of not feeling enough. Every single person.
0: That's which is why I like to share conversations on this. (laughs) All right. Fun. So fun getting to know how people start doing what they're doing. And isn't it so amazing how you can just like, Be curious about something and then just keep following that curiosity and make such big things happen. Like change is really happening because he became interested in this. And he's not the only one out there making changes. You are capable of making changes too. To learn more about Finian and Kiss the Ground, kisstheground.com. I'll have social links and website links in the full show notes. Again, go ahead and watch Kiss the Ground on Netflix. And um, yeah, I think they do. They have so many different take actions, become a soil advocate. They go to your, their website, donate now. They have so many ways to look into what you can do. Stewardship education. So go it out. Go check it out at kisstheground.com for full show notes and everything me. I'm at yourjoyologist.com and show notes, you hit yourjoyologist.com backslash podcast and you'll find all the episodes there. I'm at Your Joyologist on social media, and I love, love, love hearing from you. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I would really appreciate if you haven't already to sit, subscribe, and if you want to leave a review, just take a quick you know, minute and hit a screenshot before you hit submit and email your screenshot to podcast at and I'll send you a gift from my product line just like I have every guest pick a keychain, I could send you a keychain, an art print, one of my new daily connection journals, a magnet. You just don't know what I could send you if you leave me a review. (laughs) Because that's um, reviews and subscribes, that's how podcasts grow and um, become more discoverable. So that's why people ask you to leave reviews. But also it's really nice to hear your words and why you're listening and what episodes you're listening to and what they make you think about. So of course, feel free, to shout me out at your joyologist on social media, like I already said, because I love also hearing from you personally. All right, a um, last thought for the day, I'm going with what are you claiming? What are you claiming for yourself right now? And that could be claiming for yourself right now today, like I'm claiming joy, I'm claiming peace, I'm claiming I've already done enough, I am enough. Or it could be claiming some big goal, vision, curiosity that you have for yourself that you're going to give yourself permission to explore. So what are you claiming? Maybe even say it out loud. I am claiming... I'm claiming magic. That's what just about to come to me. All right. I'm claiming magic. I am claiming magic. All right. Thanks again for listening. Keep on listening to some more awesome episodes or I'll catch you here next time you choose to join in.